When I was in the sixth grade, I tried out for the musical. I was new in the congregation at the time and enjoying singing in the youth choir, and my friend Dana, my mentor in the youth choir, was also trying out for the musical, and she explained to me that there were several good lead roles in this particular musical. Now, in my mind, the only question and the only point of the tryout was to determine which lead role I would play and which lead role Dana would play. But I was not selected. I didn't get a part, not any part, and I was devastated. Not even a minor role, what had possibly gone wrong? And then I realized I don't have a solo singing voice. It is my first memory of thinking I'm not good enough, but it happens to all of us. Our childhood naivete is shattered as we discover that we are flawed creatures. We don't make it on the competitive soccer team that we'd wanted to be on for years. We don't get selected for the traveling baseball team. We don't advance to the regional spelling bee. We get sent home from school for making a poor choice. We don't get accepted into the college of our dreams. And we learn through all of this that we are no good. And unfortunately, that childhood revelation of our own flawed and messy humanity can linger for a lifetime. A few years ago, a woman came to see me in my office. She was not a church member, but she was a well-known person in our community, a highly competent professional woman, a leader in the volunteer realm. She was that kind of mom that all the other moms want to be like. And she was struggling, she told me, because, well, she didn't really like herself. She didn't feel good about herself. She didn't think that anything she did much mattered. She was stuck in a mire of self-loathing. People who jump off the Golden Gate Bridge to end their own lives have a 98% success rate. But sometimes, if they hit the water feet first, they survive. A study was done on the roughly 30 human beings who have attempted suicide at the Golden Gate Bridge and not succeeded. Every single one of them said that the moment they jumped, they regretted the decision. It's a four-second fall from the top of the bridge to the water. You hit the water at about 75 miles per hour. And Ken Baldwin said that the minute he let go of the rail, he thought to himself, what am I doing? This is the worst thing I have ever done in my life. What about my wife? What about my daughter? And he lived. And his life was completely transformed. And like many others in that group of 30 who survived, there was this profound spiritual experience that stayed with them for many years. Today, we begin a three-part series on the topic of relationships. We're calling it significant others, and typically when we use that term significant other, we're thinking of a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, but we have all kinds of significant folks in our lives, parents, siblings, friends, 
And sometimes even a stranger, as Corey talked about in Ecuador, can become a significant other. But what about ourselves? What kind of relationship do we have with our own soul? Do we love ourselves? Do we loathe ourselves? Do we feel at home with who we are? Or do we keep parts of ourselves hidden, tucked away, so that no one will see that part? Maybe even we won't notice it. Modern sociologist Brene Brown has written a lot about our feelings about ourselves, our perceptions of ourselves in the modern world, and she describes our human reluctance to be vulnerable, to share who we really are. In a recent podcast, Brene Brown told the story of visiting a classroom of middle schoolers. They were talking about the subject of belonging, and she was engaging them as they were talking about how good it feels to be in a friend group or how good it feels to belong to a team. And then they also talked about the pain of being excluded from a group, to not belong. One of them said, it just makes you feel so bad about yourself. And then one little girl raised her hand, and she said, what if you don't feel like you belong at home? And Brene Brown was shocked. She thought she had heard everything. She couldn't believe that this little girl didn't feel at home in her own family, in her own house. And then she looked up, and she noticed several kids in the classroom also nodding. And one of them said, my parents were great athletes, and I'm no good athlete. And another said, my parents, they were very popular. My siblings are popular, but I'm not popular. Even at home, they didn't feel free to be themselves. Sometimes I wonder, I worry, that even the Christian faith has been guilty of making people feel like they don't belong. Church reminds us of this perfect example of Jesus, and we know when we look at his life that we have often fallen short of that picture of glory that we see in him. Today's scripture lesson, though, Psalm 8, paints a different picture of human beings. The psalm raises the question, what are human beings? It is a question that is asked by biologists and anthropologists and psychologists. Who are we? It is a question that poets and novelists and philosophers have spilled billions of words exploring. What is the answer, though, to this question, who are we, if we ask this question from the perspective of the divine? The psalmist answers plainly in today's text, God made human beings to be just a little lower than the angels. The word is actually a little lower than the gods or a little lower than the divine beings. And the scripture goes on to say that God has crowned us with glory and with honor and that God has given us the responsibility for caring for the birds and the fish and the sheep and all the things that God has created. Three realms are painted in this short psalm, the divine realm, the human realm, and the realm of creation. And we are placed in the middle, just a little lower than the angels. But how often do we wake up in the morning with this high view of humanity? How often do you scan the morning's headlines and think, wow, 
human beings are absolutely stunning and amazing. They're just a little lower than the divine. Or how often do you look in the mirror and see your own groggy face in the morning and say, wow, now there's a person that God has crowned with honor and with glory. Sometimes when I read Psalm 8, I wonder if the psalmist has seen what I have seen. Prisons full of those who have committed horrific crimes. Politicians divided on every subject, even prayer. Parades where some shout offensive profanity. And my own life filled with imperfections and inconsistencies. How can the psalmist dare declare that God has made us a little lower than the angels? Aren't we a lot lower than the angels? Calvin Trillin, the famous writer from Time and New Yorker, was born right here in Kansas City. One of his most popular books, and the only one I ever bought, is called About Alice. He wrote it five years after losing his spouse, Alice, at the age of 63. But throughout his career, Calvin Trillin had often written about his wife, Alice. He wrote about every detail of her life, how she carried herself, how she thought, what she wore, what her hobbies were. He noticed so many details about her and wrote about them. Mark Rawls, another writer, said that Calvin Trillin made ordinary husbands nervous. Because when a wife says to her husband, do you notice anything different about me? Most husbands have a 50-50 chance of getting the answer right. But not Trillin, he always noticed. He was mindful, he paid attention. One time, Calvin Trillin received a letter from an admiring reader. She said, sometimes I look at my boyfriend and I ask myself, but will he love me the way that Calvin loves Alice? The psalmist proclaims that God is mindful of humans, that God pays attention to us, that God notices us. Psalm 8 says, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? But that can also be translated, what are human beings that God remembered them and that God visited them? What makes us a little lower the, than the angels? It's not that we're perfect. What makes us a little lower than the angels is that God remembers us and God visits us. God chooses to be in relationship with us. God cherishes us. God claims us. God not only loves us, God places us in charge of tending the rest of creation, the rest of all that God loves. I love what one New Testament scholar said. He said that God's love is not like a heat-seeking missile, which is triggered by something inherently attractive in the target, the object of love. No, God chose to have a special relationship with every single human person and with all of the human race. What makes us angelic 
is that God invites us to be in relationship with God. There was a dad. His name was Jake. Jake had a son who was 11 named Sebastian. And Jake was seeking for a way to invite his son back into a meaningful relationship. I read this story last summer, and for some reason, Jake and Sebastian's story just stuck with me, and I I couldn't quite figure out why. Jake's son, Sebastian, had arrived at that stage of his development where he couldn't really carry on a conversation with his dad. The dad would say, son, how was your day? And his son would go, like that, like no actual words came out of his mouth. And so the dad kind of got crafty, and he said, Son, how was your soccer game today? And he said, fine, fine. And so Jake felt his relationship with Sebastian kind of slipping away. Well, he knew that Sebastian loved Lord of the Rings. And so Jacob woke up in the middle of the night one night, and he thought, I could take Sebastian to a place that looks like Mordor in the Lord of the Rings. I could take him on a trip to those remote volcanic mountains of Iceland, and we could hike in that place where there are black sand deserts and acidic mud pits and the barren snowy mountain passes. And he booked the trip and convinced Sebastian's mother that he would keep Sebastian safe even though one hiker every 24 months perishes on this trail. On the 34-mile trek over four days, they faced various dangers. They set out at the beginning of the hike in freezing drizzle with poor disability. The views on that hike were absolutely stunning, but the conditions remained tough throughout. On the trail, Jake and Sebastian began to talk. They shared stories. They talked for hours. They talked openly. The son wanted to know more about his dad's childhood. How did you meet mom? At one point, the father and the son had to cross an area where there was a river of snow melt. They both took off their shoes and socks and rolled up their pants and put on sandals, and they waded knee-deep into the river. And on the other side of the river, the son sat down, and the dad kneeled down by his son's feet and began putting his warm socks back on just as he had when Sebastian was three years old. An 11-year-old Sebastian looked down at his feet and into his dad's face, and he said, Dad, I love you. And his dad said, Sebastian, I love you. How do you quantify what happens in a moment like that? Could it have been the majesty of creation that enveloped them as they hiked through God's magnificent landscape? Was it just that they had time alone to talk with one another without any electronic devices? The psalmist says we are a little lower than the angels. But the psalm begins by saying, O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And it ends with the exact same line, the only psalm to do so. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
And in between those two lines about God's majesty, it says that you and I belong to God, that God has claimed us and taken us on a hike through the most incredible landscape, a place that God has crafted with God's own hands, painting the moon and the stars and tucking us in between and crowning us with glory and honor. And it is because of our relationship to God's beauty that we know we are God's beloved. At the end of his book, About Alice, Calvin tells this story about his wife, Alice, who liked to volunteer at this summer camp for terminally ill children. Alice befriended one of the little girls there at the camp, whom she called L, the letter L. L was severely disabled in addition to having a terminal illness. Alice admired Elle's courage and optimism and determination, and Alice saw that there was something kind of magical about this little girl. One day, the little girl was playing with all the other kids, completely engaged in that childhood game, Duck, Duck, Goose. And while the kids were all playing, Alice looked at a pile of the little girl's belongings. And there was a letter that her parents had sent to her at summer camp that was sitting open on top, and Alice couldn't help herself. She glanced at the first line of the letter, and it said, If God had given us all the children in the world to choose from, L, we would have only chosen you. Alice grabbed the note. She handed it to one of her fellow camp counselors, and she whispered, Quick, read this. It's the secret to life. There is a way in which every single one of us is just like that terminally ill little girl. All of us are flawed and broken. None of us will live forever. But we have a God who would choose us again and again and again.